Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Dusty Mancinelli, a filmmaker whose ongoing collaboration with Madeline Sims Fewer produced the pair's first feature, Violation, last year. Madeline appeared on this podcast last September when they brought it to TIFF, and now that the movie's available on VOD and just arrived on Shutter Canada, it's Dusty's turn. Dusty picked Back to the Future Part 2, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale's impossible challenge to make a sequel to one of the most perfect entertainments ever concocted, expand that movie's world enough to set up a third film, and not send the whole thing flying into a wall. Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, and Thomas F. Wilson returned. Crispin Glover and Claudia Wells didn't, creating a different set of challenges. Zemeckis was coming off the technical revelations of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and expectations couldn't have been higher. Somehow, Back to the Future Part 2 met them, and it did it at 88 miles an hour. This is someone else's movie. So I was born in 1985. So I, you know, Back to the Future was kind of quintessential for me growing up as a kid. And I think really what brought me into wanting to be a filmmaker was um, escapism, really. It was this idea of disappearing into another world that was very magical, that would allow me to leave my own personal troubles behind as a young kid. And there was just some something so imaginative um, about both, like, well, the whole trilogy, but specifically the kind of recursive nature of Back to the Future 2 that was just really like satisfying as a viewer um and made me yeah made me want to be a filmmaker made me excited to want to tell stories even though the films that we've made uh maybe you can't see the uh the, the influences there but it's <laughs> um but yeah it's it's also you know the score like Al, Al, alan um silvestri's score is just so like gripping and um yeah, magical. It's it's really remarkable how that movie makes me feel. And I guess now as an adult, I revisit those movies every year, like several times because it, they hold a really uh, beautiful nostalgic feeling for me where they're able to bring me back to that feeling as a kid. And I think that's also just the power of cinema is that when you think about your experience watching a movie, so much of it is tied to who you were at the time. Oh, yeah. And and then there's something really great about revisiting films as you get older and your view of them changing because you're, you're evolving as a human being. Yeah. And well, in movies about time travel sort of lend themselves to that anyway, right? Because it's all about confronting some version of, if not yourself, then the world you came from or the world you're going to. And, and the beauty, of course, of, of Back to the Future Part 2 is that, you know, the first movie doesn't need a sequel. It 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 just doesn't. It's a perfect box. Uh, I love it. I I know the the there's a whole generation, probably yourself included, right, that grew up with the to be continued thing at the end of the video, which was added after the fact and and isn't part of the theatrical cut. And so um, the fact that they did make two more and that they are as good as they are is almost nothing short of miraculous. I mean, it, as a trilogy, it's incredibly satisfying. Um, but the second one, it was like a revival, like a like a religious experience. Not only that it was working, but it, that it was funny and that it was entertaining and that the time travel mechanics were somehow adhered to. The rules don't change, but they get more complicated. And yeah, I cannot imagine watching that as a budding filmmaker and trying to figure out how to make that happen, how to do that again, because it's so insanely, infernally complex. 
What I found so interesting was hearing Bob Gale and Zemeckis talk about um, the end of part one was a joke that they thought would be like a funny way to kind of end the movie on this kind of cliffhanger. And now, now as writers, they've written themselves into a box because <laughs> yeah. they know now that they have to start um, the second movie that way. Um, and it was just so interesting to me that they would then let like, it's such a smart way to plan a sequel where you're, you're trying to revisit the actual first movie in the sequel in a, in a way that really plays as like the, the highlights of the first, the Johnny be good, the, um, you know, the clock tower and all those like really fun moments that we, we think of when we think of the first movie. Yeah. It's the greatest hits, right? Like it, it's, yeah. but it also plays with an urgency that even the first film didn't have because I, I, well, I've, I've said this on the, the previous Back to the Future episode that this podcast is done. Um, that was my film school, basically. I went and saw Back to the Future at least weekly for the entire summer of 1985 just to see how it worked because I couldn't believe how good it was, how how satisfying it was, how it works on every level. I, I just started to, at one time when I went, I was by myself. I couldn't get anybody to go with me. I usually managed to talk someone into coming. And then towards the end, like, late August, early September. It's just like, I'm going to go myself. Uh, so I watched it in a shoebox at the Eaton Center and there were maybe five other people there. I would go every Tuesday because the tickets were cheap. And I just watched Christopher Lloyd. Like I just paid attention to him because how he managed the mania and how he attenuates his panic because Doc Brown is always operating at nine and sometimes goes to 12. Yeah. But that is like that performance is just a masterclass in holding the screen by simply moving your eyes a tiny bit. And then watching him in two where he's even more manic, but he doesn't have the makeup to deal with in the older scenes. So he's, he basically just always looks the same. And again, it's that simple um, in universe excuse of, Oh, I made myself feel younger because we can do that in 2015. Boy, that would be nice. But the um, <laughs> like so many of the things they, they expected just didn't happen. It's just so depressing. But the yeah, uh, I mean, well, except for Trump, which is crazy. Yeah, that <laughs> is something. <laughs> Trump and and Rob Ford too is something we really need to talk about. And well, and Doug Ford, I suppose. Um, that the 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 only things that yeah, the only things in Back to the Future two got right were the negative things. Yeah, stuff is more and, expensive, and, the and the idiots are in charge. That's right. It, it's crazy. Like in many ways, the the movies shouldn't work. There's so many. Like on the page, when you think about what's actually happening, even the unlikely relationship between this like really old eccentric man and this high school kid, yeah, which is never fully explained, except you know, joke, you know, they joke about him being his uncle. Um, yeah, and like you said, I think you know, Christopher Lloyd's insanely manic, eccentric, uh, kind of idiosyncratic performance is is so charming somehow yeah. and it works so well and I, I also just love how this movie um how the filmmakers just ha had to kind of re-envision it through casting a, a bunch of times with you know replacing eric stoltz uh, which is crazy when you hear that that they shot this movie without michael j fox for so many weeks and then realizing oh we got to go back and redo these shots yeah, yeah um you know or in part two replacing um Claudia oh. Wells with with uh, Elizabeth Shue, right? Yep. And you're just if you go back and you rewatch, you're like, oh, that's crazy that they would just have the guts to go and do that, um, or flipping um, an actor Glover, upside yeah. down, yeah, you know, because he's was went a little nuts. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, no, it, it's a bit, sorry, what am I, what was I trying to say? The, the amazing thing about it is that the revisionism works within the reality of the film too, because you could maybe make the argument that Jennifer looks different because of Marty's activities, although it's a long shot. I remember someone trying to insist on that in 89. It's like, oh, well, he changed things. It's like, yeah, but he would recognize that change. And it's weird because she's just also, because they didn't get Claudia Wells and they don't know what to do with Jennifer's character, they do have to sideline her very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, but well, you know, the, the time travel, shooter. yeah, yeah. I mean, the time travel in that movie doesn't work, but I love um, to talk about why it doesn't work, but yet sure. how we don't, we don't really care <laughs> that it doesn't work because they, I mean, the question of does time travel even exist, I think is, is so debatable. And I think it, it, it sparks our imaginations in a really interesting way. So it allows for every audience to interpret and come up with their own kind of explanations, which is kind of what makes the movie so great is when you hear people rationalize, oh no, but all the alternate uh, timeline means this and, and it's ways to justify how the movie actually works. But I'm curious what you think. And if, if there's like a plot points or things that stuck out um, in the second movie that you feel like, okay, this is like a fundamental logical fallacy here, but, but somehow I, I don't really care as a viewer. Um, I can't think of anything, honestly, the, uh, the groundwork is laid for the for the sort of, the fungible timeline in the first movie. But what is introduced here with an alternate timeline, that's new. That The idea that, so, okay. What's established in Back to the Future is that if, if Marty changed something in 1955, which would erase him from existence, it takes about a week for that to take place, to actually root. So you could make the case that he is creating a single unbroken timeline where previously he didn't exist, now he exists in 1955 and he's ruining things. So obviously he has to correct those things to make it possible to return to his 1985. Otherwise, it just won't be there. That lines up with what Doc says about the alternate timeline in Back to the Future 2, where he says, no, if we go forward, we're only going to end up in the bad place. We can't go back to a, a reality that doesn't exist anymore. So by drawing the alternate timeline as an illustration, he ruins it conceptually because people think there are two. Uh, it's the same branching timeline argument they bring up in Avengers Endgame to refute Back to the Future, which doesn't actually work in that case either. But nobody cares because it's about, you know, a happy ending and saving the world. Same thing here, right? Like you can look at stuff and say, oh, but Doc is wrong. Like he just doesn't get it. And that's fine because by the time we catch up to it, it's everything is where it needs to be. But the genius of it is that it follows Marty exclusively. If it yes. had branched off, except for the one scene where Biff time travels... Well so that's that's the one I want to bring up because yeah, I think yeah. your interpretation of this single line timeline is correct, and I think that it, what they did was a magic trick with Doc Brown drawing the alt universe because it, it allowed you to shift your focus for a moment and go, oh wait, yeah, that makes sense, right? <laughs> but how could Biff steal the time machine, go into the past, and then reinvent a whole new timeline, but then return to the original future, right? <laughs> that this... Doc and Marty were. Yeah. This is where my time argument comes in. This is where my one week argument comes in. Biff wasn't there long enough to lose his future. So I don't know that it holds up. I'm pretty sure it doesn't. But uh, <laughs> in my head, it works because it took so long for the effects of Marty's misadventures to reach back to 1955 and start to erase him. Like it takes a whole week for it to catch up to him where obviously it should be instantaneous. He shouldn't, he simply shouldn't have existed. 
by well, there, there, there are deleted that. scenes. I don't know if you remember them in yeah, part yeah. two where, where Biff disappears. Yeah. And, and if you, if you watch it, it makes sense because, you know, all the shots of him returning to the future, he's in a lot of pain. He breaks yeah. his cane and we're like, what's this about? And then they never go back to it. But in the deleted scene, he's, he, he sees his hand, I think, disappearing. Yeah. But that's why they had to cut it. Right. Because they realized that it doesn't make sense. It would make people think of Marty. And that's right. Yeah. So by pulling it and just looking like he's had a heart attack or something, I mean, I knew what it was because I, had watched the first one so many times that I know that's what happens when you're erased from existence, but I'm willing to go, okay, well, they'll have a reason for it. And the reason is they want to make more movie. Yeah, exactly. It can't just end here. Um, I mean, that's sort of the beauty, the beauty of time travel films is that there's always going to be some kind of paradox. And then the question becomes as a filmmaker, you know, it's, it's a bit of a rabbit hole how far down do you go in answering some of these questions before, you know, just totally confusing or com- overcomplicating the world that you've created? Yeah, the momentum really helps, I think. Just the fact mm-hmm. that they're rushing through all those stuff that they're rushing through and the urgency that like, just having Doc there to panic about everything is a guarantee that you don't have to spend any time talking about something you don't want to talk about structurally. Yeah, but you know, even as a kid, like those were some of my favorite moments in the movie. The, the it's like the idea of the impossible. Oh yeah, and and even you know thinking about this film as a science fiction film, so so, so much fun is exploring these um, you know abstract concepts and trying to you know apply them to your own life. Like, and I think there's a lot of fun in just um, the way this movie kind of deals with that. Yeah, I I don't know if I've discussed this before, this one plot point, I probably didn't. And I'll probably cut it again because it always feels weird to talk about it. But it just like coming out of it, Back to the Future really landed for me because my parents had a really ugly divorce, just a lot of anger. And I was 10 and it was clearly a formative experience because my take on it was, well, if it happened to me, I would probably let myself be erased and let them just not have met because it would be better. Like it would have been better for both of them. And I think that was like, that's a weird teenage mopey Smith song kind of altruism, (laughs) but also like absolutely valid to the experience that I had. It's like, I, I can root for Marty to fix things because it's a fantasy and those actors are charming together and you want everybody to be happy. But I wonder if given the opportunity, how many children of divorce would have you know, maybe think about it for a couple seconds. I mean, that's really interesting. I relate to it. I mean, my parents divorced when I was younger, though I would say that I I had a very unusual experience where I was not rooting for my parents to kind of work things out because I, I think I quickly realized that they were not right for each other and that we would probably all live healthier, happier lives with, oh, with yeah, them yeah. kind of apart. I know that. Um, and so I didn't romanticize like them together. But it, it could also be that there was just so many years of, of like just negativity and, you know, bad uh, experiences. But yeah, divorce and, and as a kid is really, really tricky yeah. to think about. Yeah. And those early scenes of an unhappy marriage in the first film. And then even in the second, when you realize things aren't going as smoothly, you know, like George and Lorraine are happy together, but they're kind of in a rut. Not mm-hmm. that that's going to change, but that Marty and Jennifer are risking the same kind of casually boring future. And I mean, it's also, I think it's valid that their kids never become assholes, that that's just not a thing that happens. That's something Marty heard from Doc because Doc was freaking out and it's fine. It doesn't matter. It's another one of those little hand waves where they're not assholes. They're just like, Marty Jr. is doing some dumb shit. That's basically it. 
I think part of the reason why the movie is such a feel-good film is that it's about the exploration of um, you reaching your full potential as a human being. And when you look at the relationship between the parents, you know, part of the the kind of miserable, mundane relationship they have in the, the first movie is that you can see that they've not in any way found the, the best versions of themselves. And somehow Marty is able to spark that specifically in his his father's ability to to write science fiction. But there, there's something in the film. It, it's small. It's like a, a really tiny little thing that runs throughout, but it is this feeling of like going back, undoing things in your past in a way that allow you to really achieve something that you aspire to achieve as a person. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think it's probably not a coincidence that Gail and Zemeckis first started writing this when they were working on 1941, which, you know, it's, it's a fascinating artifact. It's not anybody's fault. It's just this thing that got away from everyone, but it, I got the feeling that that's where a lot of those sense of regret came from. Like if we hadn't done this, we could have made the movie we wanted to make right away. And the drafts that it went through and the changes that it went through, it was all for the better. Like it, all, every delay, every rewrite improved Back to the Future immensely. But I think also that would have made it incredibly challenging for them to make two and three as good as they were because the self-doubt would be crippling. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I read somewhere that they wrote two and three, like that, that it was actually one movie. That was the original idea, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. So they shot it back to back and then they split it up. Yeah, well, it was going to be, I, I talked to Zemeckis, the first time I interviewed him was in 92 for The Death Becomes a Junket. And I was just bouncing with stuff that I wanted to ask him because I was like, I think 26. And it's just like, well, what about this? And what about this? And tell me more about this thing. And I don't even know. And oh no, I wasn't even that old. I was like 23. Um, and he said that they developed it as a single feature. Then they realized they wanted to do so much traveling that it would be like, if they did it at two hours, it would just be a blur. So they thought about making it three hours long. And then like, that was just impossible. Universal shut them down. They said, no, you make two movies, just find a place to break it in half. And he said that if they hadn't broken it, if they hadn't had to break it in half while they were writing it, while they were like in, in deep, he called it deep pre-production, but like they were still writing it. It was nowhere near starting to, to go into production. Um, he said, if they hadn't had to break it, they wouldn't have come up with the extended sequence in 1955 at the beginning of the movie. It would have gotten right to 1885 a lot faster and it wouldn't have been as satisfying. Uh, it would have basically been finding the grave immediately. I think basically right. like it's the next shot. They, yeah. I and it's so interesting because the one of the most satisfying things for me in the second film is the ending. There's something just so magical about the letter, like the the Western Union guy coming in the rain. You think yeah. he's gonna he's an assassin, and he delivers this letter, and you realize um, that this was all planned. And him coming back to Duck right after he sends him back to the future, and he's like, "No, I'm back. I'm back from the future." There's just something about just seeing that recursive scene again that's just so emotionally satisfying as an audience. And this third movie, I'm not a huge, huge fan of the third movie, um, but the first act is so good. It's such a great way to kind of get us back into uh, this world and these characters. Yeah, and it lets um, it lets Lloyd and and Fox just show the warmth that the that the characters always have had for each other, but because of all the racing around in the second one, it's just, you don't really get to register it the way you did in the first. And just that little, those quiet moments with them in, in any small room. And it happens over and over again in the third one, because the whole thing is small rooms. Yeah. Uh, but like, you know, I think about the scene in Doc's workshop in 
the first film where he sets fire to the model and Marty calms him down in a really sweet way that you, it's just, that just rang truer than anything else in the film in terms of the relationship. And that keeps coming back in three and it's in, it's in bits of two, but the mission is so much more important in, in two that it is racing from scene to scene to scene. And of course the ending is such an amazing payoff because that Alan Silvestri score, as you mentioned, has not stopped for like half an hour and it's just propelling us to it so that when we get the the restated version of, of Doc sending Marty back to, to 1985 at the end of two, from the end of one, it breathes and then it just, <laughs> that little shadow of Michael J. Fox running around the corner my audience screamed with pleasure. Like it was just everybody going, ah, it's not over. There's more, there's more, there's more. It was just so much fun. That's amazing. Yeah. And the crescendos of the score. It is, I think it is my favorite Sylvester score, the, the entire suite for all three films. I, I really like Aliens, but. Oh, yeah. It's just so, it's amazing. And I, I do wonder though, like how much of this whole trilogy is kind of the, the serendipity of the, the right collaborators coming together at the right time. Oh, yeah. And and they're just being this kind of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, magical kind of, you know, um, thing that emerges because you, you look at, again, you look at some of these elements individually on the page or just the ideas themselves. And I, I just don't see the magic intrinsically, you know, but even when you talk about just the relationship dynamic between doc and Marty, it's like, you know, I think so much of that is just, there's this thing, this charm and chemistry between these two actors that, you find so endearing and warm as, oh, a, as an audience. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've seen the footage of Stoltz and I've, I've talked to him sort of obliquely about it once the one time I interviewed him and he was really, he just sort of deferred and it's like, ah, it wasn't working out. And I get it. Like he wasn't, I don't think he was comfortable in the package, but also when you see the, the audition footage, when you see the clips of him, it's just like, Oh no, he just like, they just weren't on the same page. And it really is that simple. Like, Back to the Future probably would have been a fine film with Eric Stoltz. So he would have like the rest of the script is solid. Everybody else is doing would presumably, because we know they did have done exactly the same thing they did in the finished film. But Fox's energy, you know, he, it's how Zemeckis explained it at the time. So when, when Eric Stoltz is on the skateboard in the chase scene in the first film, he looks scared. And when Michael J. Fox does it, you can enjoy it. Like there's a yeah, sense of a thrill fun. to it. Yeah. Yeah. And even when Marty is in the second film confronted with like the death of the murder of his father and the institutionalization of doc and his entire world being ripped away. I, Michael J. Fox still makes it possible to enjoy the movie, to understand like he, we can because I guess because we've already seen history be rewritten safely in the first film. And there's part of our brains that knows this isn't going to take. But also knowing what you knew in 1989, that there's another movie coming. I was like, it could stick for a while. We could have to deal with this. And he manages to play all of it. Like He manages to make it inviting and fun and scary. He turns it into a roller coaster ride instead of a horror movie. Yeah, I think you're pointing at something that's really interesting that I feel like not a lot of people talk about, which is the relationship between the tone of a film and the performance style within a film that an oh, actor sure. is choosing to employ. And like Eric Stoltz was kind of known for like method acting and, and like this kind of grounded performance. And I, I haven't seen any of the footage of him uh, shooting back to the future, but what I've read is that it's, it's very serious and, um, and there's like a, like a brooding thoughtfulness to, to his approach. And when you think about, well, what the, what this movie is, it's, it's a fun, like you said, roller coaster ride that's supposed to 
feel like an adventure and it can't take itself too seriously because there's too many silly things with, with just the existence of doc Brown, for for example, in the opening (laughs) sequence of this ridiculous in in part one speaker that explodes uh, when he dials it up to 11. So because the film is just so chock full of these kind of outlandish, um, exaggerated moments and and the score is really elevating that it's 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 in this kind of fairy tale-esque um world i feel like the performance styles really need to match and um what michael j fox is doing is though you know you believe in everything he's saying what he's doing he's doing it at a level that's very heightened that matches the tone of the movie really really well yeah i mean it's i get that you could see the script for Back to the Future and think, oh, it's about someone experiencing an existential crisis at 17 and not knowing anything about his reality. And there is like, there are movies like that. And I kind of want to see one, but um, that involves time travel. That, that could be fun. But if you have, I mean, you have Thomas Wilson doing Biff as an ape, basically a human (laughs) baboon. Uh, And it's great. Like, I love that performance. He's a monster. He's probably, you know, like, He's probably a rapist. He's definitely trying to be one. Uh, Biff is a bad person, and I do not wish to, you know, <laughs> validate any of, or justify any of his behaviors. But oh my God, Thomas F. Wilson makes it fun to root against him. Like you want to oh, see, oh, right. want to see him covered in shit. You want to see him get his face beaten, and you want to see all these terrible things happen to Biff. And that performance can only exist in a world where Michael J. Fox is doing what Michael J. Fox is doing, and where. Christopher Lloyd is doing what he's doing. Like there's no, yeah, you're right. There's no room for realism in a movie like this. Crispin Glover comes close in the early George McFly scenes in 1955 in the first film. But I, you know, but I think Crispin Glover's in, actual craziness as a human being <laughs> bleeds yeah, his, through his performance in a way that I Oh yeah. It. <laughs> it's inherently destabilizing. Absolutely. Yeah, and it, like, and it is like you regret his absence in the second and third. Well, not the third so much because George isn't in them really. Uh, but yeah, he, I mean, he's two. so great in, in the first movie and it's really sad. I mean, I, as a viewer, when I was a kid, of course, you know, flipping this other actor, uh, was Jeffrey Weissman upside down. Like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't notice as a kid <laughs> that yeah. they switched it, but as an adult and it's still remarkable as an adult watching it, like how the, the actor gets his voice so well and how putting a ton of makeup, putting stuff upside down, you don't really notice. Yeah, but, but he but it's was an inert such a great, character, right? Like he's, yeah. he just doesn't, he barely exists in, in two, even when he's on screen. It's it's true. And, and then, yeah, he's totally gone in three. And there is something um, kind of generational that's missing from the third film that you mm. really feel in one and two, um, where it just becomes like this crazy, <laughs> which is funny, but this like, you know, Michael J. Fox playing Michael J. Fox playing Michael J. Fox, like all, all the lines of just him. Yeah, which is which is fun, but it it's um you know not I, there's something missing I think. Too bad, Crispin. I I mean I don't know what what the deal was, but I, all I can think about is that like Letterman appearance, which I think yeah. was like around the same time. They said it was a sal- yeah. They said it was a salary dispute at the time, which doesn't mm. sound like a Crispin Glover thing, honestly, because I don't think he cared about money that much. He was off making weird musical reviews and, and stage shows. Um, but the, well, the other weird thing about the recursive Michael J. Fox of it all is that they also bring in Leah Thompson, which I don't think that's right. I mean, I think the, the it doesn't fun... really quite make a lot of sense, but she's yeah. a terrific actor and I, I love what they do with, you know, the aging. I don't, I don't know if it holds up so much when 
we're watching these digital restorations, but when we're, and it's hard for me to think back because I, oh, yeah. I saw, I definitely have seen those movies in print. Oh yeah. But I, I saw them I in 70 millimeter and they look great. I mean, there were blow ups, but they looked great. Even the digital effects were like the early, um, uh, what was it called? The Technocrane effects, the early um, multi. Oh, the Vista, the Vista Glide. Vista Glide. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. I kept wanting to say Go Motion, and I know that's wrong. Um, they looked amazing. They were seamless in in two and three, and you could feel Zemeckis just like being really careful about how he used them, rather than just papering the film with them. Probably because it would have been insanely expensive and impossibly time consuming. He uses them very sparingly and he does it so well. There's a few moments now as an adult, I look back and I, I can see like this, like a slight lighting variation between the cut or a parallax issue on, on like a box that's not floating at the right space as the yeah. other ones. Um, but it, I mean, I think that's what Robert Zemeckis does so well. He's, he's like an exceptionally talented technical director. Um, but it's so interesting to see kind of, his trajectory as a director, because I've, I'm a huge fan of his earlier work, but not so much his, his, you know, oh yeah, a lot of work. So I'm, I'm just, I'm so fascinated by how directors evolve, and um, he's definitely continuously honed his technical craft. Yeah, but he gets obsessed with things. Um, it's the same. It's weirdly, it's the same with James Cameron. I think, uh, although Cameron has just made fewer movies in his later waves, and. So you can't really throw the same complaint against him. But with Zemeckis, he gets so excited about a tech that he starts figuring out ways to make a movie around the tech. And that never, ever works. It's, um, you know, like Forrest Gump's mix of digital and practical. That's a a good solution for the story that he's already telling. I don't like the movie very much, but it's not because it's boring or, or, you know, unimaginative or dull. It just, I don't, I don't like the story being told. I don't buy it. But the idea of, well, what if you could get photorealistic actors against historical figures and all the little things or, or you know, just his use of CG for the tracer bullets in the Vietnam sequences, that it all serves the story he's telling. Uh, Flight is another one where like his fascination with green screen environments translates into a reasonably interesting story, even though it kind of peaks in the first act and has nowhere to go. But then you see stuff like Welcome to Marwin, um, which shouldn't exist. <laughs> that thing is an abomination, but it's like, well, it's kind of like my mocap thing, but I can also do this. And, and then you see it and it's like, you don't, you don't get it. Like you don't know what the story is about. You just want to impose the tech on it. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I always wondered if he was moving in, in that digital realm because he just didn't like working with actors or he didn't <laughs> like the, the practicality of physical production because there's something really freeing about you know, being in a studio and and shooting things over an extended period of time and not having to to you know worry so much about performance, I guess. Sure. Um, but I, I love when filmmakers design tech for the movie. You know, like Spiel, um, uh, not Spielberg, um, <laughs> Kubrick, very different director, uh, <laughs> developing a lens. You know, for, oh, for Barry Lyndon, the low light lens. Yeah, Barry Lyndon, yeah, the low light lens, which was like working with NASA. It was like, a, I think it's like a 0.7 uh, T-stop or something, which yeah. is insane. Well, and NASA um, owed him for shooting the moon landing, obviously. So they That's were, right, of course. They yes. didn't do anything for I him. mean, small, small payment. <laughs> <laughs> but I could absolutely see Stanley Kubrick, you know, I'll shoot your moon landing if you build me this thing later. I yeah, can totally see course. him that Oh, bargain. yeah, that, that's a great bargain. Um, but that, <laughs> to me, that's like the magic of like, um, or the confluence of kind of, 
science and engineering and, um, you know, the creative arts, like uh, them coming together in a way that really amplify um, the medium. Cause there's something really just exciting and magical when that happens. And I'm seeing it now with um, what's happening with, you know, the Mandalorian. I don't know if you've seen just how oh, yeah. that stuff is shot, which yeah. is these really crazy wraparounds LEDs that are um, so, so it's, it's practical, CG, which is, which is just kind of hard to wrap your head around a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Paul, Paul Lee told me about shooting his X-Wing scene because I had to know. Uh, and he said, like, he found himself believing it. Like, it was so convincing that he himself had a moment of disconnection. It's like, oh, no, no, I'm just in a Star Wars movie now. That's how this works. And That's I, amazing. I know, but how, like, how do you, well, it's not how do you figure out how to do it because it really is simply backdrops that are just you know, full motion, digital, photorealistic backdrops, but the, the, the outgrowth of that to a place that works, that fools the actor as well as the viewer. That's amazing to me. And I'd love to sit in one of those for five seconds, just to see how it plays and how it works. Uh, Douglas Trumbull was talking about creating his thing um, with high frame rate. He believes uh, that there will come a point where a screen is basically a window where you get a fully three-dimensional convincing motion graphic reality and you're just looking through it and your brain oh. just buys into it. And oh yeah. I think that's for sure going to happen. I don't know if frame rate is really the, the magical factor in, in what un unlocks it. I think Jack, Peter Jackson tried that. Um, yeah, no, the higher the frame rate goes, the more artificial the whole thing feels. I, I Yeah, that's what it feels like, but it, it, it could also be some weird cognitive dissonance with this idea of like, we know we're watching a movie so we have a built-in expectation that the thing that we're watching is not real. Hmm. So if it, will there be this line, like an event horizon, <laughs> a threshold that has to be crossed before we'll even believe something is convincing where it actually looks very unreal yeah. before it just tips over to the other end. Yeah, well, I mean, I saw uh, Billy Lynn's halftime walk in HFR and it was... Everything looked like sets. Costumes looked like costumes. There was this line that was absolutely crossed where the lighting just stopped being convincing, even though it was the most real depiction of lighting that you could create on a screen. It was bizarre. Um, it just... Uh, oh, of course, uh, Anthony Scott Burns and I were talking about this on his episode about um, Manhunter and how Michael Mann's obsession with flyweight digital and... and being quote as real as possible has just revealed things that are unreal about his own sets and costumes. Like public enemies suddenly looks like a bunch of kids playing dress up, even though if you shot it with 35 or 70, it would look like a movie. It just doesn't work in the application that, that they've chosen. And the genius of Zemeckis making Roger Rabbit was realizing that you could use the tech that you could use the same actor rather than replace somebody with a puppet or, or a, a tune or anything like that. And figuring out that's how supposedly that's how they cracked back to the future too. They didn't think it would be possible until they started seeing the tests from Roger Rabbit. And, that's really interesting. And knowing that Michael J. Fox specifically could do it like that. They knew he'd be able to pull it off. I think the future is some kind of fusion between practical and digital. Um, and when you look at, look at films that rely just purely on practical effects, like Jaws, for example, which mm -hmm. I think is like 50 years old, it looks great. You watch it now and it holds up because it's a, an actual physical thing that was created. But you go back and watch like the early 2000s, watch a film um, like the uh, Matthew Broadwick 
Godzilla, which I yeah. think was nominated for an Oscar. If I'm not it mistaken. Probably, it probably was. It was a studio you know, and painting. It's, it's, and it's crazy, but it's, but our eye at the time, that's all we had. Maybe that was the, you know, the best of its time. Um, but the problem with digital is that it's constantly going to outdate itself. But when you start doing these really clever kind of techniques where these like, like they're doing in Mandalorian with uh, Jean Favreau, where you're, you're doing these practical digital effects, it's, it becomes hard to, to kind of pinpoint where that line is. And that's really exciting to us. Um, Madeline and I as filmmakers is trying to find ways to make things as realistic as possible um, so that you can really suck an audience in and really get them to forget they're watching a movie. That's for me, the, the best experience I can ever have as an audience. Even if I hate the movie, the best experience is the one where I forget my own existence <laughs> for two hours and go on this joy ride. Yeah. I have to admit when you said that, you know, the escapism of, of back to the future flavors your own work and influenced it. It's like your films are about people who are trapped with themselves. That's no escapism possible. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's true. I think again, <laughs> it's, it's about um, the audit. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because we were, we're, the movies just come out and you start to see audiences reactions and you start to realize, Oh wait, we've made a really polarizing movie that, that a lot of, audiences maybe are not ready for because they don't like the way the movie makes them feel because mm -hmm. a lot of audiences when we when you especially a film like back to the future 2 which is such a feel-good movie commercially successful films operate on a feeling that um audiences crave and when you're not giving them that feeling um the film becomes not for everyone immediately it becomes unpopular because it's you you can't appeal to kind of um too many groups right and that's that's its own realization we're having i think as filmmakers now as we're kind of even though i think we knew when we made it okay this is going to be <laughs> a provocative challenging movie you hope deep down that everyone kind of will will connect with something about it um but i guess i we weren't prepared for just the the, the level of uh, oh the ferocity of the response yeah, yeah. You, the audience either love it or they hate it. Yeah. And when they hate it, they hate it. <laughs> I think that means you got it right, though. I, I think like the, the one, okay, it's not the one regret of this pandemic year, but the one biggest regret I had of TIFF was that I would have come back and watched Violation with the Midnight Madness crowd because that would not have played for them the way they wanted it to play. And I would just... I'm so pissed off that I didn't get to experience that with 1200 people because every single one of them would have digested it differently. And some That's people true. would have been on board and some people would have been repulsed. And I, you know what, the magic, the magic of uh, watching a movie and having a communal experience is that you talk immediately after and the, and the film is lingering inside of you. So as you are forming your own opinions about it, you're hearing other people's thoughts and it's shifting your own uh, ways of interpreting and yeah, processing yeah. things. And we, we caught a little bit of a glimpse of that at Sundance because they did a live Q and a, and you could see like in the chat window, <laughs> as depressing as that sounds <laughs> of people changing their minds because they were asking questions and, and you could hear a real conversation happening about the movie. Oh. Whereas w when you remove that, like if, if we're just in a world where everything is just these at home personal experiences, um, and film becomes con pure consumption, which is what it, where we're headed, unfortunately. Mm, yeah. Then there's fewer conversations happening, even in a virtual space, right? It's just about like, wh what have you eaten today? <laughs> yeah. And the loudest <laughs> and how much can you eat? 
Yeah. And the loudest, juiciest opinions are the ones that circulate because they're the ones that catch fire. And yeah, in the case of something like violation, you, I mean, you know what it means. I think I know what it means, but other people are going to think things that are, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, I've been watching it on a macro scale with the, the Snyder cut thing that's happening around this, the justice league thing where people are uh, defending absolutely everything about it because and I quote, it's an expression of a father's love. And that is not what that movie is. I mean, you could you could make the argument that the post-production, the reconstruction was all influenced by his state of mind after his daughter's death, which is unambiguously awful and horrible. And I, no one should have to go through that. But the idea that now it's some sort of inviolable testament to his devotion when the whole thing was shot pretty much beforehand and also is bad. Like you just, it doesn't excuse the storytelling flaws or the, or the self-seriousness or any of the other things, it's perfectly of a piece with all of his other work. And to say that this one can't be criticized because of the tragedy that post dated it is impossible, but people are making this argument like really loudly and it's exhausting to even consider, but you know, like it's something that's not in any way rooted with the, with this film, with the object in front of you. Um, Maybe, you know, the choice of hallelujah over the end credits. That's about it. That I, I haven't seen it. I you will. It's this, coming. I I'm discouraged to watch a four hour movie. Really, oh. when I when I heard that, I was just maybe as I'm getting older, <laughs> I just feel like I don't have that much time, or I want to watch things in chunks. I, I just think that we're living in a time right now where everything is you know superheroes and Marvel and DC, and I feel like fans have really or, or the the masses have really grown used to wanting that now. And I feel like there's a real hunger um and the fact that they have as much power as they do to demand a cut in the studio listening to them i don't know i i i'm not as pessimistic about it happening i guess but i i also feel you know as a filmmaker um that there's fewer uh places and, and platforms and, and spaces for different kinds of films to be seen oh um, yeah like Back to the you Future know. wouldn't have happened in the present landscape. I don't think there'd be a market for it. It's an, I, it's not a, a familiar, I mean, it is now, but it wasn't, it was an original story with an untested television star and from the guy who made Romancing the Stone, like it's just, it would be a hard, and Romancing the Stone would be impossible now too. Those were like, those were huge. Back to the Future was the most successful film released in 1985. And number two was Rambo. Which was like, which was a sequel, so that makes sense, right? But the idea that, the idea that this little effects, this little movie with a handful of special effects would come along and spawn a franchise and and an incredibly satisfying one too. Thirty five years later, it's impossible to conceive of such a thing. And do you think those days are just over, or do you think we're going through just a a transitional period, or it's a bump in the road? Yeah, I was going to say. 18 months ago, I think it would have been over. Now I don't know because the pandemic has shaken everything up that smaller films are being consumed in quantity because they're on Netflix where they're equalized. Like everything is whatever is on Netflix. Uh, You know, the Marvel movies are on Disney plus everything is available on streaming. But as soon as you stop something, you can start something else. And we've seen the, like the, to all the boys trilogy on Netflix become wildly popular. I don't know if they're financially as successful in terms of driving subscriptions and things, but it's possible to make uh, a series of films that is very small, has people you don't know, 
and satisfies the audience. And maybe that's what happens now. And I think had the third one been released theatrically for a couple of weeks, they probably would have pulled people to it. it there, there is the, the chance too of seizing this moment where once we start going back to movie theaters, they're going to need stuff. They're going to need things to screen. And we have seen, you know, these digital film festivals of Blu-ray presentations of classics do fairly well. But if someone decided to make the next thing and build on this possibility, the idea that we aren't just looking for the next Fast and Furious movie right now, there's a chance to expose people to all kinds of other things if we're brave enough. But I don't know that it'll result in good movies. That's the thing that I keep getting stuck on because the people who pitch are not necessarily the best. Like the most successful pitch is not the best movie. It's just the thing that's easiest to understand and sell in the room. The really weird, I mean, I can see people walking out of a Back to the Future pitch going, wait, his mom wants to do him? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that. Because <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's yes. hugely uncomfortable and Leah Thompson makes it work because it's adorable. Because mm-hmm. Lorraine, like it's puppy love and it works that way. Uh, even though the one the one real problem, I think, is the idea that Lorraine would have fallen in love with anybody who had fallen out of that tree. Right, yeah. And it's, there, it, it diminishes her a bit. Yeah, I mean, the film, definitely, when you look at it from that point of view, the way women are utilized as characters, um, you know, it's, it's very... Uh, superficial and, and and demeaning in many ways. Yeah, they're 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 just there to um, service the, the the male characters. Yeah, and, and Marty is the centerpiece of the entire narrative, and I, I get that completely. But I guess I am disappointed. The one thing I would improve about part two is that Jennifer would have a more active role because she's just immediately sidelined. Yeah, and, and, and a- sorry, if Marty loves her, then she's got to be at least as smart and as inventive and and up for stuff as he is uh, even just the way Claudia Wells flirts with him at the beginning of the first movie and gives him her phone number. It's just, it's so good. It's so warm and and alive. And that relationship leads you to believe that Marty is already on a healthier path than his parents are. And so, yeah, if I, this is the woke version, I guess, of Back to the Future too. <laughs> uh, but it would have been nice if, if Jennifer had been as much of a participant, even for the first half. And that getting back to, you know, the whole 1955 to 1885 thing has to be Marty on his own. There's no way around that. That's about the relationship between him and Doc. It has to come back. But she could have done stuff. <laughs> There's more, there, is, there, there was potential there. And maybe losing yeah. Claudia Wells was the thing that made it impossible. I mean, Elizabeth Shue, though, I think... Oh, she's great. You know, she's great. She's a terrific actor. And But you're right. She she becomes um, a kind of mechanical um, mechanism to, to allow for the plot to kind of proceed yeah. and to create these kinds of obstacles rather than actually developing his, you know, relationship with her. But there is something, like, pretty asexual about um, <laughs> Michael J. Fox's character in, in that film. Like, there's nothing... There's no, there's something about his whole adventure that doesn't exude anything romantic. I think actually that's why that sequence in the car with his mom kind of works because it's, you're, there's never, he really doesn't want to be there. Yeah. She, she has no clue who he is. And there's just something um, funny about the circumstances of that. But yeah, no, I don't, I don't think, I don't see that happening. Uh, today. <laughs> I yeah. don't think there's room for those kinds of films. Yeah. Well, and Zemeckis keeps saying, or Zemeckis doesn't talk about it anymore, but Bob Gale, who's now sort of carrying the torch for the franchise, uh, has said that he'll, like, over his dead body, he'll never let anyone remake it. Zach Efron briefly wanted to, I think, 10 years oh, that's ago. Good. That's or good. someone asked him about it and he said he would, but 
It should, yeah. I, and I don't know that you can. I, short of setting it in 1985 again, which makes it a, even more of a cartoon, there's just no way to tell that story in a present day context. You could not go from 2021 to what, 1991? That's, <laughs> first of all, the music is the same and the clothes are the same. Like it wouldn't, like the, the, the leap between, you know, the 1955 of Hill Valley and the Reagan era conservatism and, and America of all of the world in 1985, that's the commentary. I don't know that there is even a political line to be drawn. And, and as you said, like it's already looped us on Trump. Yeah, I think remaking classics is just a, you know, a big mistake, um, unless so many years have really passed that you could do something really new in that space um, that becomes its own entity, you know, but I think that there's something wholly original about Back to the Future that if you try to pick that back up and redo it, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how you do that well. It's sort of like the Jumanji franchise. Maybe those are hugely successful. I haven't actually seen any of the new ones, but I just can't when I saw the trailer for them, I was like, I don't know how you, how you've done this. <laughs> you've totally transformed what made Jumanji as a film kind of charming as a kid. Yeah. I, I've seen the second one and it's fine. It's actually, it's clever, but the problem I have with the Jumanji movies is how cruel they are. And I don't like, I have no interest in seeing the third one I'll, and maybe someday on a plane, but they're always like, about people regretting their losses and, and people dying and not being able to save them. And then it's fine because at the end of the game, everything resets. But, you know, these people have just lived through 30 years of hell. Like Robin Williams, as a, like, the, 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 yeah, the, the end of Jumanji is, and you have to go back to being a child knowing all of these horrors you've experienced. It's <laughs> horrifying. Well, if you thought Jumanji was too dark, then I, I can only wonder what, how you interpreted the ending of our movie. I think it plays fair. <laughs> I think ultimately, yeah, I'm not going to discuss it on the podcast because I don't want anybody else to have their experience of it ruined, but I think it ends, huh? It ends the only way it could. Um, I'll put it that way. And I think that's just because like, weirdly enough, like back to the future's timeline rules, like you establish what it is and you don't deviate. And it feels like Violation is very, very careful about that, or at least it was during the structuring and the, and the screenwriting portion, because if you don't have that map planned emotionally, it couldn't get there at all. Like One wrong step, any one of a million drafts could have sent it spiraling in the wrong direction. And I think it really is a testament to the story you're telling and the way you tell it, that it lands where it lands, he said, obscuring literally everything for the purpose of helping listeners through it. That's fair. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. No, it's um, like being punched in the face for a full hundred and whatever minutes. And, <laughs> but every punch lands. Like you're not you're not flailing. It's they're very focused and concentrated. And and you know it's it's exactly what I would have expected from the short films that you both made. And more satisfying because of the time it takes. Because like it uses time as a factor even to to tell its story. And yeah. Um, yeah, and when people see it, I think they will understand, like, this could have only happened this way. Mm -hmm. I hope that wasn't yeah, too big for anybody listening, but that had to be. Uh, yeah, no, it, it is definitely inevitable. Um, mm. But but it's, it is interesting, again, talking about audiences' reactions about this particular genre of revenge. Um, they're, because we're deviating... In, in many ways, it's yeah. not a it's not a wish fulfillment um, type of movie. In fact, the revenge happens 
at the halfway mark. And it's really about the trauma of revenge as much as it's about the revenge itself. Um, that it, the audiences are, I think those that go specifically for that cathartic release and not finding it in the way they want to find it, <laughs> they're yeah. disappointed. Yeah. I, I mean, I love a movie that turns the lens back on the audience and asks if this is what we really wanted. Well, Funny Games did that. And I remember, you know, feeling so sick to my stomach in the last shot of that movie where they just toss her over the edge of the boat. Yeah. And it really disturbed me to the core. And I was horrified by it. And I couldn't stop thinking about the movie afterward. And it made me think deeply about, you know, you know, the way violence is portrayed in film. And maybe just think about how as humans, we're constantly consuming it at, at no cost and, and how we become so desensitized to it. Um, and that to me is the power of cinema when, when a, a film can really challenge your own perspective or the way you, your outlook and just make you think maybe more critically about an idea or a topic. And we started with Back to the Future Part 2. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to Dusty Mancinelli, whose first feature, Violation, starring co-writer and co-director Madeline Sims-Fewer, is now available to stream on Shutter Canada and a bunch of other shutters around the world. Thanks also to Ingrid Hamilton. She knows what she did. Dusty's on Twitter at Dusty Mancinelli, all one word, but the account is private. You can find Back to the Future Part 2 on Blu-ray and DVD from Universal Studios Home Entertainment. There's also a 4K edition in last year's Trilogy box set. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, and streaming in the US and Canada on Amazon Prime Video. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days, and writing a weekly Now Streaming newsletter, to which you can subscribe at NowToronto.substack.com. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.